Good morning. The reading this morning is from Romans chapter 5 and verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Good morning. So very careful not to knock over the Lord's Supper table. That's frowned upon. So just uh, making note. All right. So, hey, I want to ask you guys to do something for me, okay? So I don't know how many thousands of sermons or whatever that is at this point. You begin to kind of have an awareness, and I didn't say this in the first service, I probably should have, of sermons that are really easy to follow and those that are not, all right? And this is one of those it's not. All right, so what I'm going to ask you to do just in the very beginning is to really uh, give your mind to kind of follow along, meditate on these things, write stuff down, because my goal is to throw out breadcrumbs for you and trust that the Holy Spirit will, will really turn those, those nuggets into something, but you're going to have to think on these things, all right? And I don't have a ton of illustrations or things to go with it. I just kind of want to take us through uh, the final verses of chapter 5 and just really hold up the work of Jesus that we could sit back and go wow that is incredible and maybe for some of you for the first time in your life you will be overpowered by the work of Christ and place saving faith in him and know him as your Lord and Savior this morning but I'm asking you to work with me a little bit all right but before we jump in, I, I want to try to set up a little bit of a context. So the truth is our worldview is increasingly more individualistic. And we see that in a lot of different ways. A, a few years ago, uh, one of my favorite examples of this kind of took place. I was talking with Pastor Gene, and I've been in ministry about 20, 21 years. Gene, let's just say a little longer, all right? Um, yeah, a little, little longer. Anyway, so I was asking Gene, I said, Gene, Hey, I got a question for you. I said, I've noticed this, this trend that there are there's some women with some unique views on church history. 
they, they have a dividing point in church history that's kind of unique and it's kind of cool. There is the church before you wore pants and the church after you wore pants. Now some of the guys are just staring, some of the younger people also staring, but I got a lot of head nods from the ladies. You know what I'm talking about. Many of you kind of grew up in that church background where uh, for a long time it was frowned upon if uh, you wore pants to church. Uh, maybe for the guys, maybe that's something like a suit or a tie or whatever else. And I, I'm asking Gene about this. And I said, Gene, I said, hey, you remember when uh, the churches used to really try to get women to wear, or wear uh, dresses? And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because that's how Gene responds to things. And I said, I said, well, Gene, you know, uh, did that ever happen to trustees? He's like, well, not really. He's like, when we first started, it was still a lot more of that culture. And so it happened, but we never, like, you know, tried or really cared. It was never at the forefront of what we did. And he goes, but I've been in some churches that did, you know. And so anyway, so this conversation's happening. And what was incredible about this conversation is there just so happened to be a 16-year-old in, like, earshot of our conversation. And you could hear him audibly gasp what? Like, like, why? Why would you have to wear a dress? He's like, that's not in the Bible. And by the way, he's right. That's not in the Bible. Um, and neither is the tie or the suit. And if you wear those things to honor the Lord, man, that's great. Go for it. Um, if you don't, that's fine too. The only thing that we really have even close to that is the connection to which Gene really kind of answered the question. He goes, well, back then people really tried to wear their best to honor the Lord on a Sunday. And the student immediately jumped back with the same criticism that anyone under the, maybe a certain age has said before. Well, who decides that's my best? Well, that's a pretty good question, and it gets to my point. But the only thing we really see in Scripture about this is really in Revelation in Revelation, it says that we will be in heaven and we will be wearing robes. Now, that's important because unless you think we're going to wear something lesser in heaven, then robes is the best you got. None of us are wearing robes. So anyway, you get the point. But this conversation's happening, and here's what's unique in this and why I want to, to kind of capture your attention with this. Gene was describing the community as defining what was, let's say, um, honoring. The 16-year-old was saying, no, I define what's best, what's honoring. And see, that kind of is a good example of where our culture is kind of trending. We are more and more individualistic as a culture. And there are some strengths to that. We are much, much less legalistic. I mean, we just are. We're much less legalistic. We're probably more authentic. But there are also some real dangerous weaknesses as well. And primarily the fact that we are less submissive to the community. We kind of go it our own. We are limited to our own wisdom, our own gifts, our own sense of accountability, our own desires, our own kind of rights. So we're limited to ourselves and those who think and act like us because in an individualistic success, uh, society, that's kind of all we allow in. Uh, 
probably an easy example of that is something like modesty because the truth is through the lens of an individualistic worldview there's no room for modesty by definition there just wouldn't be room for modesty because modesty isn't about individual rights modesty is about edifying the community it's just the way it's built and if the community has no right to speak back into the individual then any attempt or any call for modesty really becomes a call against one's personal rights does that make sense you follow me and so what we have happening in front of us is a front row seat for this transition this battle for our worldview as it relates to individualism and you say what on earth does this have anything to do with Romans chapter 5 I knew we would get there I mean you know, we were gonna get there all right Romans chapter 5 all right the original readers of Paul's letter were the complete opposite of our growing individualistic worldview they did not think this way they did not come close they were much more covenantal or communal in the way they saw the world they found identity in their social groups um, sometimes too much so if you think about the Jews there were so many Jews for example in that day who saw themselves in with God in right standing with God and if you were asking them why they would say oh because my great 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 grandfather was Abraham what are they saying they're saying I identify with Abraham I'm one of his descendants so I'm in see they saw their identity in the social groups in which they belonged it wasn't as personal and for us that's almost becoming completely opposite from the way we think and that's going to cause us to struggle a little bit when we read this uh, these last few verses in Romans chapter 5 it's going to be a stumbling block because Paul is going to say in verse 19 for as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners one man made many sinners so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous one man many righteous and that's our big truth this morning that everyone everyone is in sin as an Adam follower or in righteousness as a Jesus follower you belong to one of these two groups And with our individualistic worldview, that can be some, sometimes a problem for most of us, if we're just probably honest. It, it's hard. It's hard to get our mind there, to realize that Paul groups all of mankind with Adam. All of us. Young, old, one side of the world, thousands of years later, Cain and Abel, all grouped with Adam and that his one trespass led to the condemnation of all men verse 18 that Adam's one act of disobedience his one sin led to the condemnation all men standing before God guilty 
guilty. It's not a problem for the original readers because of the way they saw themselves connected in groups, but it's, it's really a problem for us. It's a stumbling block. And it causes us, I think, to miss some of the treasures that we'll find in Romans chapter 5. And there's a temptation here as well, and a temptation is to chase this idea of original sin as if that's the, the, the main point in the context of this section, but it's not. It's not. It, it's not the main point, and as a result, you're not going to find Paul go into all the hows and this explanation of how this works and how atonement fits in. You're not going to find any of that right here, again, because that's not the main point. But still, we need to accept that we are grouped with Adam in sin and in death. Because if we don't, we will struggle with the understanding of how we are similarly grouped with Jesus in righteousness and life. The same principles apply. And that's why we sing that Jesus is a better Adam. A second better Adam. And this is the point, that Jesus overcomes Adam. That the work of Jesus is greater than the work of Adam. That the righteousness of Jesus is greater than Adam's sin. It is the reality within our big truth this morning. See, think of it this way. Remember our big truth? Everyone is in sin as an Adam follower or in righteousness as a Jesus follower. See, if you have identity in Jesus, you have overcome your identity in Adam. It is at work in you. It means you are no longer stuck in the family of Adam, but you have been adopted out of the family of Adam and placed into the family of God. And Paul's going to just unpack this and this kind of back and forth comparison between Adam and Jesus in the next few verses. He's going to give us four big ideas. And again, I just want to kind of plead with you. Just, just immerse your mind into these big ideas this morning. I think they are life-changing. We should celebrate them. They are encouraging, and they are also convicting. So our first big idea that we're going to see right off the bat, okay, Jesus' obedience, Jesus' obedience overcomes Adam's disobedience. Jesus' obedience overcomes Adam's disobedience. We stand before God. In the sight of God, marked by Adam's disobedience or marked by Jesus' obedience. First, let's look at Adam's disobedience. Verse 19, for by one man's, talking about Adam, disobedience. That's how verse 19 begins. See, Adam disobeyed a direct command. All right, a direct command. Adam's in the garden. He was created. God said, you're good. You're here, have dominion, see that tree, don't eat that tree. Adam's hanging out. One day, he and Eve, they eat from the tree. Now, that's a very simple like, explanation of what happens here, but it's pretty clear. He's given a direct command, don't do this, and Adam does the very thing God told him not to do. So he was disobedient to a direct command of God. And as a result, we all share in the consequences of his disobedience. 
Verse 17 goes on and says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And he goes on in verse 18, the one trespass led to condemnation for all men. We all share in Adam's disobedience. And there's a question that needs to be asked right here. And Paul alludes to that in verse 13 and 14. And here's kind of the question. Well, what about those who did not violate a direct command? See, Adam was told, don't eat that tree. What if you weren't told by God not to do something? You didn't have a direct command. He says in verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Now listen to verse 14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So the question's being begged, are there exceptions? Are there exceptions? What, what if you didn't have a specific command? And Paul makes a, a really good point. He says, look, the law came with Moses. Moses gave us the first five books of the Bible. He wrote them down, inspired by God, gave them to the people, and the people had clear commands. But between Adam and Moses, people, young, old, sometimes really old, by the way, they died. They died. Sin happened. They lived in sin, and they died. Here's what Paul's point is. Sin and its consequence of death reigned between Adam and Moses. What that means is it did not require a direct violation of a spoken command. All those people were grouped with Adam's disobedience. They're there. I love the way Eugene Peterson says this. He says, even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did, by disobeying a specific command of God, still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one who will get us out of it. And so if we born stand in the family of Adam, we stand before God in his disobedience. But through faith, as we've been studying through chapter 4 in the early part of chapter 5, through faith, we can stand in Jesus and be marked by his obedience. Verse 19, so by one man, Jesus, by one man's obedience. Now, this is really interesting, and this kind of goes back to that worldview challenge that we have. However flawed our thinking is to think somehow that it's unfair that we might be grouped with Adam and his disobedience I mean you know I mean I don't know if you've ever thought this way but you thought man if I was in the garden I would have done things differently right whatever whatever like illusions are in that thought and whatever broken like you know logic is in that Hells to the mystery that Jesus' obedience would be counted to us. 
that we could stand before God with the obedience of the very Son of God given to us. That is unfair. That is wowing. That should blow our minds. And that's what Paul is saying, that we stand before God marked by Jesus' obedience. Why? Because Jesus' obedience overcomes Adam's disobedience. Our second big idea, Jesus' righteousness overcomes Adam's sin. So we stand before God marked by Adam's sin or by Jesus' righteousness. Let's look at Adam first again. So Adam's sin, verse 19, for by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. He says it this way in verse 12, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and all sinned, all sinned. See, Adam's disobedience imparted sin into his nature and his world. Adam and his race were broken. They were broken. And in that moment, enemies at war with God. That's how Paul describes it a few verses before in chapter 5, that we are enemies with God in our sin. And the world around Adam, the world that we live in, broken and cursed. All of it, all of the world, all of us broken in one disobedient bite. And so we stand before God in sin. In sin. Not just of the bad thing that we have done but saturated in a nature and world of sin that goes all the way back to Adam. And this is why Paul says in chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But through faith in Jesus, we can stand before God marked by Jesus' righteousness. That's incredible. Verse 19, so by one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. We were made sinners through Adam, but we can be made righteous through Jesus. He says that in verse 21, the righteousness through Jesus Christ. He says it this way in verse 17, the gift of righteousness through the one man, Jesus. See, Jesus' obedience imparted to us his righteousness his righteousness to those who receive the free gift verse 17 this is important all right sometimes people will go into 18 and they'll use 18 verse 18 for a verse to defend universalism which basically just means it doesn't matter what you believe Jesus' work on the cross covers everybody. We're all with him. We're all redeemed. We're all going to heaven. We're all good. But like most things like that, it's without, outside of its context. You read verse 17, you have a clear communication that it is a free gift given to those who receive it. There is a personal responsibility, not a work, but a personal responsibility to receive the free gift of Jesus' righteousness through faith. And it is not a righteousness of their own, but a free gift through Jesus to the many. 
verse 19. And so again, just notice what's happening here. Jesus' righteousness overcomes Adam's sin. Our sin is great. Jesus' righteousness is greater. Our third big idea, Jesus' justification overcomes Adam's condemnation. Jesus' justification overcomes Adam's condemnation. We stand before God condemned in Adam. In other words, declared guilty. Declared guilty. Or we stand justified in Jesus, declared righteous. Again, let's start with Adam. We stand before God condemned in Adam, verse 18. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. See, we are marked by Adam's disobedience in which we are all made sinners. And so we stand before God as sinners who then are condemned, declared guilty, acknowledged for what we are. And yet, through faith in Jesus, we can stand before God justified in him. Keep reading in verse 18. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Marked by Jesus' obedience, we are all redeemed. We are made righteous through Jesus. And as righteous before God, we are justified. In other words, God looks at you. He looks at man. Watch this. For the first time since the garden and says, you're good. You're good. Not just a little good. Not like, hey, I'm proud of you for trying kind of a good. But you are as good as the only begotten son. Your righteousness is as pure as the righteousness of Jesus because it is through his righteousness that you stand before me. You were once broken. You were once separated. You were once condemned and guilty. But now, through faith in Jesus, through his righteousness, you stand before God good. The first time the first time since the garden of eden that man stood before god and god said good wow do you understand how powerful the work of jesus is because we were once condemned guilty with no place to hide But through the work of Jesus, we have been justified, made right before God, because Jesus' justification overcomes Adam's condemnation. And all this leads to this final big idea. And this one is so encouraging. And it's so important. It's so urgent in your life. Life in Jesus overcomes death in Adam. Life in Jesus overcomes death in Adam. See, we all stand before God, dead in Adam. 
spiritually dead, nothing to offer, separated from God, void. Or we stand alive in Jesus. Eternal life in the glory and presence of God. Joint heirs with Jesus. Again, let's look at Adam first. We stand before God in Adam, dead. Dead. Verse 12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. We were guilty, condemned before God, facing his wrath and fury, the sentencing for our sin, which is death and separation. He goes on in verse 17, he says this, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. See, church, death reigns in the family of Adam, and there is no exception. See, in a room this size, the truth is, we hurt. We live with the consequence of the death that reigns in the family of Adam. And don't you wish, don't you wish you could do something to prevent death? How many of us have lost someone who we love so very much? And we long to hold on, to keep them to spare them from death, and yet we can't. Whether they were young or whether they were old, death reigns. There is no exception, no place to run, no place to hide. There is no saving yourself and there is no saving another. No escape. This week, our church lost Larry Belcher. He was, uh, he's the Jennifer Lawrence father. Some of you guys know that. He passed away last night and went to be with Jesus. They hurt. Some of you this year have lost loved ones. You hurt. There is no escape. Death reigns in the family of Adam. But verse 17 does not end there. If left to ourselves, that's the end of verse 17. But verse 17 continues. Paul writes, For if because one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more. Church, much more. Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life, in life, through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
The reign of death is overthrown by Jesus. And life reigns in him and life eternal and life in pure presence of God in all of its glory in all of its splendor forever in Jesus see we had death and that's all we had inescapable death but in Jesus there is life see Adam brought death through sin but Jesus brings life through his righteousness Paul summarizes it in just a short couple of verses to the Corinthians in chapter 15 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 21 for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Paul finishes chapter 5 and verse 20. He says, where sin increased, Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Life in Jesus overcomes death in Adam. That should do two things in our heart one if you're here and you stand before God in the family of Adam having never repented and placed faith in Jesus as the son of God who paid the penalty for your sin having never accepted his gift of salvation his gift of life and faith it should scare you to death because there is no hope and no escape and only the wrath of God and death that awaits you. And for those of you who through the power of God, through faith, have claimed the gift of Jesus' righteousness as your own, man, that should encourage us. It should encourage us. Grace abounds. Jesus is greater than death. The most extreme consequence of our sin, He conquers it. And He gives life. And we know that there is more. And so we should live our life encouraged, even if beat down by sin's greatest consequences. Because Jesus overcomes. See, church, we, regardless of our individualistic worldview, must face the reality that we are either dead as an Adam follower or alive as a Jesus follower. Paul will finish this thought in Romans chapter 8, and he'll use adoption terms. 
verse 19, and then I want to jump to chapter 8, verse 15 and 17. I just want to connect this thought for you. What I want to ask you to do is just listen as I read God's Word and kind of just give a summary to what we're talking about this morning. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. For you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. See, here's what Paul was saying. We were born into a family that was doomed. We were born into a family that was marked by disobedience, marked by sin, and stood before God condemned. And there is no escape. You can't can't get yourself out. It is the family you belong to, whether you want to or not. And yet, God in His love sent His Son who through his obedience and his righteousness would take on himself the sin and the consequences of the family of Adam, that through his righteousness he might offer the free gift of salvation to be accepted by faith and allow for adoption. And in that moment, reach over into the family of Adam and begin adopting out saints into the family of God who stand now in the family of God. Not as some servant. Not as a redeemed servant. But stand in the family of God as a son or as a daughter. Joint heirs with Jesus. Before God, as righteous and as holy as Jesus himself. Because it's through his account in which you stand. Church. We were dead in Adam. But Jesus is greater. And he offers us the free gift of adoption, of salvation through faith. But rest assured, it is the only the only way to salvation. And in just a moment, we're going to celebrate as a church and take the Lord's Supper. And church, as we do, I want to challenge you to remember. Remember the work of Christ, His righteousness, the gift of His body and His blood that made way for our salvation. And celebrate. But if you were here, and there's never been a time in your life where by faith you claimed the gift of Jesus as your own, I want you to know you are dead in the family of Adam. You stand before God condemned. I don't care how good you think you are. You are broken before God. And there is only one way to be redeemed 
from the broken family of Adam. And that is through adoption through Jesus. By saving faith in the free gift of his righteousness. And as we take the Lord's Supper, as we get up and come forward, what I'm going to ask you to do in a few moments is just to go back. Go right out these doors to your left. There's some counselors at the hub. And just say, I'm wrestling. The Lord's doing something to me, and I'm wrestling with what it means to have life in Jesus. They'd love to talk with you. And they'd love to point you to the better Adam. The one who brings life and not death. Church, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your work. Remind us of its power. Father, we were once dead in Adam, but through your righteousness, you have overcome Adam's death and you offer life in life eternal justified right before God as sons and as daughters Father I pray that if there's anyone here who, ne- who hasn't claimed the gift of your righteousness through faith Father I pray that this morning your spirit would overpower them and you would reveal yourself to them and that you would give them life. And Father, I pray that as your church takes the Lord's Supper, that we would look back and remember that we would give thanks for your blood and your body that was sacrificed for us. And that in all these things, you would receive glory and praise. In the name of your son, Jesus, our Savior, amen.